0: Welcome to the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons podcast. I'm your host, Peter Chalmers, a shoulder and elbow surgeon at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Rachel Frank, a sports and shoulder surgeon at the University of Colorado in Denver. Rachel, how are you? Doing well, Pete.
1: Thanks very much. How are you?
0: I'm doing great. Before we get started, I should mention that the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily express reflect the views of the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Society, the interviews of Utah at the University of Colorado or Tulane University, Today, we have the supreme fortune to be joined by Dr. Buddy Savoy. Many of our listeners will know Dr. Savoy, but I'd like to briefly introduce him. Dr. Savoy was born and raised in Louisiana, attending LSU for medical school. He then traveled to Mississippi for residency for, before completing three fellowships, one in arthroscopy in Virginia, one in uh, trauma with AO in Switzerland, and one in hand at MCW in Mayo. He then began his practice in Mississippi uh, before joining Tulane in New Orleans, where he currently serves as chairman. Dr. Savoy's contributions to our field are innumerable, with over 150 papers on PubMed and thousands of trainees. He has served as president of the SES and is slated to serve as president of the AAOS. In addition to his research and leadership, he's internationally renowned for his manner with patients and his operative skill. Dr. Savoy, welcome to the podcast.
2: Uh, thank you very much. It's an honor to be uh, included.
0: Um of Wall, one of the things I wanted to touch upon is, you know, many of the listeners to the podcast are early in their practices. They're early in their training. Um, One of the things I noticed looking through your training is that it's a little unusual. You did three separate fellowships. Tell us a little bit about your decision at that point. Why did you pursue that at that point and um, how things changed maybe about that decision since then?
2: So the, that was a long time ago. First in, uh, um, I was a bit uncertain. I knew I wanted to do shoulder, elbow, wrist surgery, um, and there really weren't any fellowships that did all of that. And most uh, <clears throat> most of the shoulder, and elbow fellowships only did open surgery. Um, and I wanted to do I wanted to do trauma. I wanted to do shoulder fractures, scapula fractures, uh, elbow fractures. I wanted to do a lot of arthroscopy, um, and so it was hard to put all of that together uh uh with one fellowship. So I just decided I was young. Um I just soon try to figure out uh how to rather than learning on the job, I'd like to go visit people and I, I was just so amazingly fortunate I uh trained with a guy named Dick Casperi, probably at that time the greatest shoulder arthroscopist in the world. Um and then Terry Whipple, uh, who started wrist arthroscopy along with Gary Paling and Jim Roth. And then when I when I went to Switzerland, I uh, got to work with Martin Allgauer, um, Tom Rudy, and just, just amazing trauma people. Um, I also got to go over to see Werner Muller, uh, who wrote the book about the knee. So that was another sports part of it. When I came back, <clears throat> and then I went to follow John Gould up to Medical College of Wisconsin, uh, a bunch of good things happened. He put me at Mayo half the time. So then, then it's Bill Cooney, Ron linshide Jim Dobbins, Ernie Moray, Bob Cofield, just unbelievable experience. And then there was a great hand group in town in Wisconsin um, that was just unbelievable, Lou Shamoy and Dave Olson. And they did a ton of wrist work. And then so when you put all that back together, I started practice and, and it was very interesting. Um, once I started, I started figuring out things i I could do well um and there were there were holes and so I wrote dr Colfield and I went back and spent a couple of weeks with him. I wrote uh Charlie Rockwood and went down to San Antonio for a couple of weeks and then had a tremendous experience where I went up to London, Ontario to work with Rich Hawkins, and most people know Hawk as being in in Colorado and then in in uh, South Carolina, but it was just the most amazing thing to go up uh to London, Ontario and work with him three days a week and then work with Jim Roth and, and uh, over at St. Joe uh, a couple of days a week as well. So I sort of just fortuitously uh, got to work with just amazing people who, who were incredibly grace, uh, you know, just so gracious and allow me to, to learn things from them and stay in touch throughout all, all of my career. I mean, it's just unbelievable people. So um, sometimes I just think I have to be the luckiest guy in the world. <laughs>
0: Well, certainly that um, sounds like an incredible training experience. I mean, just the list of names you mentioned includes so many important people in such a huge variety of fields. One of the things you glossed over a little bit that I wanted to ask you about is you mentioned that you you went into practice and then you made the decision to go back and visit Hawk and to go back to visit a couple of different people, it sounds like. Tell tell me what you based that decision on. Were you in practice and you thought, well, I'm seeing things of this pathology that I don't know how to treat or did you realize there, were, there was pathology that you didn't have? You, you, there was holes in the coverage of the surgeons around you where you were practicing? Tell us a little bit about how you made those decisions.
2: So it was interesting. When I, when I went back to Mississippi, there was nobody really doing shoulder and elbow work between uh, Charlie Rockwood in San Antonio and Dick Casperi up in Virginia. Jimmy was I was doing mostly knees then he hadn't moved into the upper extremity and so i was seeing a lot of really complicated things a lot of failed surgeries just from minute one and you know when you're in training you see a lot of things but trying to learn how to take care of people and make sure they do well um i think is paramount patient patient outcomes patient safety patient ability to get back to doing what they want to do i think is is should be our first priority as surgeons take care of the patient and their family and as i found things I would encounter I really didn't know what to do and it wasn't back then it wasn't as easy as you get on the internet and you find something and or you and so I would call uh call Dick Kasperi I would call Terry Whipple I'd call Dr. Cofield I'd call Dr. Morey, and just go I, I don't know what to do and sometimes they'd say well you should do this sometimes they would say you know well this is a very difficult problem maybe you should refer that and so I would try to figure out how to get them from Mississippi to San Antonio or to Mayo and um and sometimes uh, someone someone to Dr. Cofield and I went up with the patient. And you know, so I could see what he did and how he addressed it and, and what he wanted to do. So every time I looked at something that I, I didn't know and this, again, this was a long time ago. We've come a long way in how we treat things. Um, then I would I would go visit someone and then the other part of it, which is really interesting, um I have a lot of old papers on, like, isolated middle glenohumeral ligament avulsions of the shoulder, which is something you see in bench pressers, and um, anterior super instability where they've avulsed their supraglenohumeral ligaments. So I was doing a lot of surgeries, and arthroscopically, you'd look in the shoulder, and you go, huh, that's a tear. Um, I should fix it. Uh, how do I fix it? I don't know. I only knew a few things. Anchors didn't exist. And thank God we came up with the 60-degree with, uh, ideal suture grasper because that made life a lot better. But um, and then anchors, of course, helped out a lot. Um, But you would see something, fix it and then collect a series of them and and you work backwards. So you would see this, you'd fix it, patient would get better. Then you try to figure out, well, I need to know how to how to know this ahead of time. And so one of the critical things that I did when I visited people was I want to spend time with them in clinic. I want to see how they examine the patient, how they talk to the patient. How did they figure out what was wrong before you went to surgery? Because I think. Diagnostic surgery should never be in anybody's armamentarium. And the only way to do that and the only way to get better is to go find people who are better than you and go spend a little time with them.
0: God, like I think that um, those insights are so interesting. Um, it's amazing to me to hear that you had patients where you didn't know what to do. You refer them, to Dr. Cofield, and then you would travel with the patient to the Mayo Clinic and go into surgery with Dr. Cofield and watch the way that he would address the problem and say, okay, now I could go back to... Where I'm from, and do the same thing in the future. It's certainly um, certainly such an interesting history. Do you think that that's historic now, or do you think that kind of thing is still still should be part of the young the young shoulder surgeon who may be in an area where they're seeing things they feel unequipped for? Or do you think that with with the advent of ever, all the resources we have online and all the books that have been written, that that, that that's something we've been able to get beyond? Well, you know, I'm older, so.
2: I, I like talking to somebody or seeing them work in person. Um, but I recognize fully that a lot of younger people, um, give, are really good at, at technology and finding these things. And you have things, you know, where surgeries are posted online and you can find them. So I think however you get the information, I think you should get it. Um, so I think there's a lot more available. You just have to know how to find it and how to discern it and how to figure out it goes to what you're doing in practice. At the same token, there's nothing better than going to spend a day or two with somebody and just watch how they, how they make the diagnosis, how they transition from that diagnosis to whether they need a surgery or not, how they do the surgery, and how they manage the post-op patient. And so, you know, in, in residency and in fellowship, you see a lot of that, but really once you get into practice is when you really learn how to take care of folks and nothing really, and you have to learn your own way. And I think going to watch somebody else, how they do it, you can always incorporate something. Um, You know, I tell my residents and I've told my fellows for years, the only person you have to be better than is the one you were yesterday. So if today you're better than you were yesterday and you do that every day, you're going to get better and better and you'll know how to take care of people so inherently in yourself we're all surgeons everybody wants to be the best they can be and i think in order to do that you may look at things and say i'm just not getting this i can't figure this out online i'm gonna go watch one and uh with somebody that knows how to do it and it'd be perfect when uh when i was in practice i was you know you know that was there were still a lot of rheumatoid patients i was in a lot of total elbows or okay, getting a lot of patients who needed them and and yeah, I spent a little time with Bernie, but I was having a problem. I was getting, I was not able to expose it the way I wanted. I was having, I had a couple of fractures that I had to fix while I was doing the elbow replacement. So I, call, I, I wrote him and then called him and went up there to spend, he's doing a case and he reaches in and he cuts the entire medial on collateral ligament and the elbow just pops up. I said, oh, Dr. Moore, you can't do that. Um, the elbow is going to be unstable. He says, it's a semi-constrained prosthesis. We don't need it. It's like, oh, I'm going back home. <laughs> I, I, now I know what I was doing wrong. And I, I hadn't spent time with him. I just hadn't picked that up. And it's just a little tiny thing when you're watching somebody work and they do one thing that makes your life much easier. I think that's something that you can't pick up on a video. You can't pick up online. You have to visit somebody to get that. And so if you're having a problem, I think visiting somebody is a really good idea.
0: Yeah, I think that um, the advice you just gave is super interesting in today's environment because people make videos and then they edit them to make themselves look better. People, present, this is my, the slickest thing I ever did and they make it look really easy. <laughs> and it's not necessarily reflective of what actually happens in the operating room. We talked, we've talked we talked about that with um, Pascal Bolo in our last um, meeting about how how valuable live surgery is at a meeting and how you don't really get that with an edited video. And nobody makes videos of themselves doing the exam. Am I I remember I watched you do an exam on stage at the Medcalf meeting, and there were three exam tips that I picked up that I use almost every day. Um, that, oh, you know, cool. it's that I uh, so I I totally agree with you, and I think that's such valuable advice for young surgeons that you're not going to be able to learn it all from a video. You may need to go visit someone, especially if you're struggling with something particular. Yeah.
1: Pete, are you saying that every rotator cuff repair that I see online on whatever venue doesn't take the surgeon four to six minutes to complete from skin skin <laughs> <laughs> With no bleeding, perfect exposure. Yeah, videos you see actually are not edited.
0: That's how long the surgery actually takes. If it takes you longer than that, <laughs> Rich, you must be doing something wrong.
1: I got to go back and rethink my training and career at this point. Um, <laughs> Dr. Savoy, you, you've been in a, a really unique situation because you've worked in both private practice, as well as academic settings. Can you tell us and our listeners a little bit about the strengths and weaknesses of each? And we realize this is a pretty loaded question, especially in today's sure. environment with private practice, hospital employed, and academic settings. And then further, yeah. um, what inspired you to move to Tulane? And, and uh, tell us a little bit about that.
2: Okay. So private practice, I think, um, for most folks coming out, should be what they choose. Um, you have control of your own environment. Um, now it falls on you to to set that environment up the way that you can be most productive but you have much more freedom to do whatever you want to do and some people say well i can't do research in private practice that's not true but um, the the, especially if you're in a good group um, a private practice group that has you know good contracts good insurance um, you don't leave money on the table you're not giving it away to a hospital system to somebody else. I think the worst practice environment is, is to be a hospital employee because you have no authority to do anything. You're at the whim of an administrator who is interested in filling out a spreadsheet and they'll tell you, oh, they're taking care of you and they're going to do this or that. But basically they have boxes they have to check and lines they have to fill out. So I don't think that's a really good environment for anyone. You're not in charge. Now, if you want to work an eight to five day and take no call and, you know and it's not a primary uh, part of taking care of patients, then then maybe a hospital job is for you. But in general, across the board, most of our advances uh, uh, nowadays and in the last probably 10 or 15 years come from private practice folks who invent something or change the way something's done to make it more efficient. Um, If you have your own surgery center, you can say, how many cases you do, you can make sure your patients are taken care of. physician on hospitals clearly have better outcomes, uh, than, than, ma- you know, than big hospitals. Every, everything has its place and its purpose, but I think that's better. Academics, on the other hand, you forego some of the income, but it's a trade-off. You, you teach residents, and when you teach during a surgery, you're going to be slower. You're still responsible for that patient, um, but you can watch people get better, um, and I think that there's a lot of value in research, in um, sharing knowledge, in the camaraderie of of an academic center when everybody's on the same page, um, in teaching residents, in having medical students, and having university students. Um, and I, I, I've been very fortunate because I always like to teach, and we started our Mississippi fellowship, and, um, and so that was fun, but I have to say, <laughs> coming down here to Tulane and being able to have high school students uh, who then go to college with an idea they want to be in med school, and then university students who end up going to med school and you watch them grow like that, and then then they go and they do residency and then have to do an orthopedic residency, but it's just fun to watch them get better and then go do fellowships, and it's, it's just a joy to watch that progression across the, the entire spectrum. So the other question was, why did I leave Mississippi? So I had pretty much about as perfect a private practice as you could have in Mississippi. Um, I had great partners, Larry Field, Walter Shelton, Gene Barrett, just some unbelievably good folks. And uh, But Katrina hit. And, and I don't want to make it sound trite, but, but the city was devastated. I grew up in Louisiana. Um, Dr. Raul Rodriguez was the chair of Tulane, and I had just right before the hurricane in June been their graduation speaker for Tulane. And so he called. Um, couple months later we're actually recruiting his son Ramon who's on my faculty now um (laughs) to join us in Mississippi I thought that was about he said now why don't you come look at maybe coming down to Tulane we've got to rebuild and this and this and so Andy my wife and I drove down we had dinner uh I think at the Windsor Court which is one of the few places that were open the whole city was dark um there was nothing going on it was pretty much abandoned and uh we were driving back very quietly and uh I think the good Lord called us to come to New Orleans and kind of almost at the same time, so we got to go. Um, so we packed up two two teenagers in high school and, and left a very lucrative private practice and came down here and haven't regretted it for a minute. Um, the uh, the one thing I have to say is that my group was very, very nice. They didn't want me to come, which was nice. And then uh, what I told them was I was just going to come down for a couple of years and fix things and uh, and then I'd be back up in Jackson. And I think I woefully overestimated my ability and amazingly underestimated all the stuff that needed to be done. So I don't think I'll finish before I die, but it, it's fun to be here. It's been so enjoyable to watch the city grow back up and watch Tulane thrive under Dr. Rodriguez's leadership and university come back and, you know, watch Tulane LSU and and everybody just do so much better. The, the city is, is, is vibrant. The orthopedic community is wonderful. There's just great surgeons here and it's just uh it's absolutely terrific, um, even with COVID and everything else. I think this is a great place.
1: What an incredible transition from a successful private practice to a successful academic practice that you've helped foster and grow. And and I don't know that everyone can say that you know in terms of being so successful at in two completely different settings. And I think that speaks a lot to your character and skill set. You know, I think there's a lot of academic. Minded graduating fellows, you know, they've been in med school, residency, fellowship, all in um, academic or semi academic programs who really want to do academics. They might be talented at research or presenting or both, but the job market just isn't there. And they end up in private practice or in a hospital employed position solely due to the market. Um, and in particular, I think right now with COVID, um, that's probably no more um, relevant than ever right now. Do you think it's easier to go from a private practice setting to academics or vice versa? Because I'm sure some of these fellows worry about this. You know, they get into the private sector and then they can they get back into academics. Will they want to get back into academics given the financial implications? What advice do you have for those fellows and, and which route do you think might be easier?
2: So I don't think there's an easier route. I think you have to follow your heart and go where your passion is. The biggest problem that you see with folks is not understanding financial models. And so we do a poor job of training our residents and, and even our fellows on what the finances of medicine, finances of healthcare are from a from a personal perspective. So what can you do to improve finances? I mean, because we, we basically you go to med school to help people. And you do residency because you found something that you like so you can help people. And North Beatles, we're the best because we fix something and we can see somebody go back and play. You know, you you, know, you do a total hip on someone who can't walk and all of a sudden they're out jogging in the park or playing tennis or golf and it's just the most amazing thing. And so there's so much gratitude for that. But when you're in when practice, you also have a family, you have kids, and uh the siren song, if you will, is you go into private practice, you start making a good living. First thing you do is you buy a very expensive house and you buy two new cars and you put your kids in private school. And then all of a sudden you're thinking, you know, I'm just not that happy with my practice. But you can't, you never lower your standard of, of living. Your, your expenses just rise to meet your income. And to cut your income uh, is really hard. I took a, a 75% pay cut when I moved from Jackson to here and I still was making a good living, but you kind of look at it and just go, huh, so all these little things I was doing I have to get rid of and which is what we did. So it was it was great, but it's very hard to do that. Uh, I think it's easier to go from academics to private practice, but, but the flip side of it is all of a sudden now finances are important and there are a lot of people that have been in academics and I, I know several that did not do well in private practice, They tried to move into a practice where um, it was truly uh, group controlled and the surgery center and all this stuff, and they just didn't understand how the finances of practice work, ended up going back and taking a hospital job just because they didn't want to deal with the business side of it. And so if you're gonna go to private practice or take a hospital job, you really need to become cognizant of how the business of healthcare works so you know what's going on and you know half of the kids we kids sorry half of the young surgeons we send out change jobs within the first two to three years 50 percent and they don't change it because they don't like where they're living they change it because they signed a contract and it's a two to three year contract and when it's up um, uh, either they get a pay cut or they just don't understand how it works and they think they're not being treated fairly um, but they just don't understand business Uh, so i think In general, to be a little bit more specific about it, it's probably easier to start in academics and move to private practice. Um, I think it's, but I think the reverse is sometimes harder just from a financial standpoint. So you have to look at the other parts um, that are so rewarding. Um, And then for all the guys, guys and girls right now, it's just a tough time. I mean, COVID has put a dent in everything everybody's doing it's hard and you know it's almost like you want to tell everybody look just take a take a one-year job somewhere because it should get a lot better i mean this is not going to last forever we're going to come around come out of it um it's just going to be a tough, six or nine months and uh so i wouldn't i wouldn't sign a 10-year deal <laughs> right now uh based on what's going on at this time
0: well i think it um your advice, maybe to young surgeons to pay attention to the finances is really v- valuable. I um, personally feel lucky to have been part of a residency where there was some attention paid to it. I think it's one of the advantages of kind of a private model is that you teach your trainees how, how to, how a little bit, how to navigate that side. I'm going to transition a little bit. You know, one of the things that I've admired about you is you've been an incredible innovator in the field. I mean, for instance, just as, just from what we've already talked about, you mentioned the the sixty degree audio suture passer, which I've also heard many times called the pinky. T- tell yeah. us your sources for inspiration. For just that's just a small example of one of the many things that you've 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 innovated on. Do you have stories of times when things went expectedly well or expectedly did not work? Tell us about the sources of inspiration you've had um, when um, wh- when you've been trying to make things better. So that, that's that's easy. That's, that's Drs. Kasperi and Whipple. I mean,
2: they, they were both at Orthopedic Research in Virginia. Um, Whipple actually invented the shaver. Um, uh, Lanny uh, Johnson gets a lot of credit for it, but he actually invented it when he was a resident um, and gave it uh, to Dionics, which is a company back then doesn't exist anymore. Um, and uh, the engineer kind of put it in a drawer, and when Lanny was looking for a shaver for an instrument maker, he pulled it out, showed it to him, said, oh, this is what I want. And so those two guys were not, <clears throat> they were just amazingly inspirational. Um, anything they looked at, if it was harder, they wanted to they design something to make it better. And you just look at it and go, this is a problem. And uh, and for me, it was, it was pretty simple because having trained with them, all I had to do was, was struggle a little bit in an operation and go, yeah, this isn't going to work for me. Um, and let's change it. And then either you went to the company and had them change it, you know, showed them what you wanted and drew it. Um, but I think changing is a big deal. Um, and just trying to make something a little bit better. There's a there's a lot of ways you can do that. And I think from uh orthopedics across the, the world, um Steve burkhardt who's trained as an engineer and just retired, is a good friend of mine. And Steve is probably the best example of designing your own stuff, patented it and then giving it to a company because it becomes profitable to him and then he can he can channel that money back into more research um for me i just wanted new toys and so i would uh and i, I would not suggest that to anybody although it was t- a lot of fun <laughs> um trying to to make new things that would just work and make my life a little bit better so there's there's many things like that that you just look at it and just go struggling to do this I wonder if I had an instrument that did this would it be better then draw it out now with computers you can do a CAD cam design in like five minutes and put it out there and and then 3d print it and you get a good idea of what it's going to do and then uh, and the other part of it I would suggest to folks when they think they're doing it is find two or three good friends um, and and do it with them so you can bounce ideas off of people you like it's a lot more fun to do things as a group than it is just by yourself I think
1: You know, one of the aspects of your career that both Peter and I and I'm sure countless others have really admired is that, you know, similar to to some of the stuff you just mentioned in terms of um, innovation and invention and tools and toys, so to speak, is that um, you've really touched upon a huge variety of pathologies and treatments, both among the shoulder and the elbow. Many mentors, especially for those of us in academics, really advise us, at least as younger surgeons, to focus and really narrow in on one, maybe two areas of interest, both from a research and a clinical perspective, to get excellent at those things in particular. What's your strategy here? Do you think it's better to stay more broad, or do you think it's better to really narrow it down?
2: So I get bored easy. I think... um, I think whatever you're passionate about is what you should follow. Um, You know, if you like trauma and you like shoulder and you like arthroscopy, then you could focus on the shoulder, but then you want to do everything. You want to do the the proximal humerus fractures. You want to do the replacements. You want to do the reconstructions. You want to do all those things. Um, And, uh, you know, and then find out what you like. And there'll be some things that, that are boring and you don't like and so figure out where where your passion is. So I think when you start, the more variety of stuff you do the better. You know, sometimes in fellowship you you do a lot of different things, you just go, you know, I don't really like that and uh and if you get in a good group you can say, Well, I don't like to do ACLs, I'm gonna give those to my partner, he's probably better at it anyway and maybe he'll give me the elbow surgery or. So you know vice versa about wrist or elbow or ankle or so you i think i think it's better to to try a variety of things in residency you're just trying to develop your basic skill set so it's kind of hard to know if you really like something and, and then when you do your fellowship hopefully you get a little bit of a broad experience about uh, more things but you kind of target it already and you have to decide if you like that or not and there may be parts of the fellowship you like and parts you don't and the parts you like if you focus on them you won't think of Learning about it and getting better at it as work, you'll just think of it as flat out fun. And, uh, I mean, we're lucky. We're orthopedic surgeons by and large. We have a good time with what we do and our patients get well. Um, always, always tell people it's funny. If you go out to dinner with folks of other professions, you end up talking about social stuff and different things. If you go out to, with other doctors, um, you can talk about a variety of things. If you go out to dinner with orthopedic surgeons, we're going to talk shop. And no matter how hard we so try, too. No matter what we do, we end up talking about what we're doing because it's flat out fun. I mean, it's great. We have a good time. People get better. And you just start seeing, you know, it just starts. You pull up your phone. You go, have you ever seen this? And, and, and that's where the conversation goes. Um, so we're, I think we're very fortunate. But I think, Rachel, for younger folks, I would say <clears throat> find out what you really like. So do a lot of things. Find out where your skill set is. Find out what you like. And if you're ready to focus on one or two areas, great. But if you're not, keep doing all of it and just try to do it very well.
0: That's such interesting advice to, you know, to follow your passion, but that you need to figure out what your passion is. You really can't find that as a second-year resident. But you, you probably need some time in practice actually taking care of those patients to figure out where that passion lies. Otherwise, you're probably just fooling yourself. What other advice would you have for for young surgeons as they're just starting their careers other than to do everything and then figure out what they're passionate about? (laughs) So I think they should keep an open mind. I think, you know, you can you can learn a lot
2: online. You can learn a lot with videos. You know, once this COVID thing gets over and we get to go back to in person, I'd say to young folks when they're getting started, go visit people. You know go to meetings don't just you know don't go somewhere and go play golf go to the meeting sit in talk to people i mean most everybody in orthopedics is really nice about if you stop and ask hey have you ever seen this um they're going to stop and visit with you and go yeah what's the problem let's talk about it a little bit um and uh so i think that's very helpful so i think keeping an open mind and don't be afraid to ask a question um you know sometimes uh, sometimes I present something that I, that I know is pretty hard and I, I presented thinking that people are going to stop afterwards and ask questions about it and then nobody asked questions and I feel like I really failed as a presenter um, in, in showing something new and different that should at least strike your imagination as to, hmm, I think I could do that. Let me go ask, how how do you do this one part of it? And you really, I, I enjoy that. I think it's really good. So for the younger surgeons getting started... Don't be afraid to say, I don't know. Don't be afraid to say, uh, or to make a mistake. Just don't make the same mistake twice. And, you know, if you make it and you don't know how to not make it again, ask somebody, ask for help. No problem with that.
1: Great advice for sure. Um, Especially for, I think, young surgeons, but really all surgeons, you know, there's, there's always things that we can improve and uh, some of my most favorite mentors, and I'm sure this applies to Pete, too, are the ones who are, you know, frequenting those meetings and asking their buddies, hey, I saw this, how do you do this, and and uh, trying to get better each and every time. You know, one, one thing that we really admire about you is you have this incredibly busy practice. Um, it's unbelievable, even with some of your night clinics and just the volume that you see and do. You run a department, you publish and do research, and then you serve our societies in these incredible leadership roles how do you do it how do you get this all done
2: (laughs) i don't sleep a lot (laughs) i don't know okay how much do you sleep let's
1: give our let's get the the average weekly uh uh sleep hours
2: i'm getting older but but for now i'm sleeping about five hours a night um prior to prior to COVID, it was about four sometimes three and a half um Mm -hmm. and uh so that worked out pretty well um somebody asked me one time if you could change one thing in your life what would you do i said i'd make a 48 hour day um so i could get more <laughs> stuff done but um i have a i have a wonderfully understanding life um my kids are gone so i, I can i can actually spend a lot of time doing all these things and and the, the other part of it is i enjoy it very much and you know if you think of something as work then it's work and it's hard to spend time on it but if you think of it as fun and you enjoy what you're doing um, then it's hard not to spend time on it. And I've been very fortunate and blessed throughout my entire career that that I've had time to do that. And, you know, you still make time. I mean, I, I tried to go to all my kids' uh, sporting games and see those and, and watch that happen. And when they got older, and, um, you know, they, they weren't, they didn't really need me to be anywhere anymore once they got to college and stuff. And that was fine too. And we had plenty of things to do. But I think I, I, the, the one thing would be, you know, the whole idea is to be of service to your patients and to your fellow orthopedic surgeons and to, to everyone else. And if you can help people, we should do it.
0: One of the things you mentioned earlier in the podcast that I thought was interesting is that you you made this giant decision to change your life by driving to New Orleans and going out to dinner. So um, the question I have for you is if 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 you could repeat that process, but... Choose to have dinner with anyone you want. Choose one historical figure. Who who are you going to have dinner with? And then, more importantly, in New Orleans, where are you going to go to eat? <laughs>
2: so, <laughs> I would I the, I would love to have met Ronald Reagan. Um, you guys are too young to know, but we went through a really down time. I grew up. I, I was a teenager in the '60s, and and then in the early '70s, when really Vietnam and Social injustice, some of it seems like it's happening again now, but um, to watch us try to come out of that. And we were, you know, we had Nixon and we had Watergate and we had just terrible stuff. Um, and Ronald Reagan came in and he changed the tenor of the country. You can argue whether he's a good or bad president. I don't much care, but, but he, he made us at least optimistic and happy to be Americans again. And, and to me, it seemed like he made us part of the whole family. So if I could have dinner with anybody, I would have dinner with him. Uh, and then close second would probably be, if, if I could resurrect the dead again, would be Abraham Lincoln, uh, just to sit and talk. And then dinner in New Orleans, uh, you cannot make a bad choice, uh, but my favorite restaurant is Clancy's because um, they have the best soft-shell crab in the city.
1: There's no better way to end this podcast than on that, and hopefully we can all enjoy some <laughs> soft-shell crab if, if that's uh, what you like. I know I do. I'm sure Pete does. Um, we want to thank you so much. That's really all the time we have for this particular podcast. And we just really want to thank uh, Dr. Buddy Savoie for joining us. Uh, What an honor for us to be able to chat with you and spend, you know, one of those hours out of your day when we're already trying to get 48 hours out of 24. Um, So we really appreciate (laughs) it. For all of our shoulder and elbow listeners out there, please don't forget to subscribe. And for Peter Chalmers, I'm Rachel Frank, and we'll see you next time.